This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome and introduce our guest today, Mary Ziegler. Ziegler is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis, and author of six books on the law, history, and politics of abortion and American conservatism. Today, we are here to talk about Ziegler's latest book with Yale University Press, Roe, The History of a National Obsession. In this text, Ziegler charts the many meanings associated with Roe during its 50-year history. I'm very excited to talk with one of the nation's foremost historians of abortion today. Welcome, Mary, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Let's start um, and talk first about um, situating this new title within your larger body of work. You have published widely on Roe, including the award-winning After Roe, The Lost History of the Abortion Debate. What unique positions or perspectives come forth in this latest book compared to your other historical work on Roe? Well, I think the the question that was really, I mean, motivating me when I started this book was, you know, which happened before Roe was overturned, was, you know, really, why are we obsessed with Roe? Like, why Roe, in a way? Because, as you probably know, Roe has been widely criticized by scholars kind of across the ideological spectrum. Um, Even before the Supreme Court formally overruled it this summer, uh, there were other precedents on abortion that had superseded it. It had never really meant real-world abortion access, and and yet there was this kind of cultural fixation on Roe. And so when I, I set out to kind of understand what that was about, and I think that's that's something I hadn't really tackled before. And I think as importantly as I was writing the book, I realized that that the story of this kind of national obsession with Roe was really not a story about the Supreme Court, it was a story about lots of people outside of the court who projected these meanings onto Roe that the justices probably never would have imagined and much less countenanced. And so at a time when ultimately, you know, the book was being completed and published after Roe was erased, right, the the properly speaking, the the right to choose abortion recognized by the Supreme Court is no more. Um, it, It also became an opportunity to meditate on kind of where our rights come from, where historically they've come from, but also where they will come from going forward. And I think we've been inclined to see Roe as a story about how our rights come from the federal courts. But when you notice how much even our ideas of Roe have morphed and have been shaped by processes outside of the federal courts, whether that's in state legislatures and grassroots movements in um, state courts even, uh, then I think you you have a much more complicated picture of, of what our rights are and where they come from. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, my second question was really about the subtitle of the book, which you've talked a little bit about, um, you know, proclaiming Roe as a national obsession. And even in the book, you've described, among other cases related to abortion, that Roe is a lightning rod in, in American politics. And I was wondering, as a student, when you were first learning about Roe, when it was not overturned at that point, what attracted you to the history of abortion in America and writing about it for a public audience? Yeah, I mean, I think (laughs) it's actually kind of a funny story. So I was a law student uh, and I was taking a legal history course. And one of the things that had interested me about legal history, I was always sort of interested in, in how 
how our world changes, like how progress happens, how um, how we move back, you know, what, what, what kinds of things provoke these changes. And, you know, as, as a young person, I thought law obviously had something to do with that, but I assumed law also had pretty serious limits as a tool for change. And one of the ways, of course, people answer that question is by looking at historical examples, you know, to see what has and hasn't worked. And I was expecting in my class that Roe would be maybe the quintessential case study, or at least one of the quintessential case studies. And we finished the semester and we hadn't read anything about Roe. And I went to my professor, whom I really deeply admired, and said, you know, basically, what's up? Like, why, why didn't we read a book about Roe? And he said, well, you know, there, there really isn't a book on the aftermath of Roe, right? There's lots of really amazing history on how we got to Roe and the lawyers who were behind Roe and even like Jane Roe herself. But the aftermath, kind of what Roe, the world that Roe helped to produce, there really isn't anything on that. Um, and so I, I thought, well, you know, I wanted to find out, essentially, I was curious. And I think that's often how historians, there's a sort of treasure hunt, kind of detective work aspect to it. And so when I was even in law school, I began kind of going to archives and trying to dig into some of these questions that were really interested, interesting me. And so after Roe, the first book that I wrote that you mentioned, I really started the research and writing for that when I was a two or three L in law school. Um, but I think that there, the fact that no one had written about it or not much was not because people didn't understand the importance. I think it was because this is also an area where, um, because Roe is so much a national obsession, right? Because abortion is such a lightning rod, most of the really important work being done in this space was on, um, on what ought to happen, right? On normative questions and not so much on historical questions. And so I, I think there was probably also um, a need that was not being entirely met uh, and probably still isn't being entirely met, right? I think there's still room for a lot of scholarship in this space. Hmm. Yeah, thank, thanks for that. And I think, you know, my next question is about some of the themes that probably emerged from your archival work and also about um, your vision for how Roe might be taught in legal classrooms now, law school classrooms now. And, you know, in, in this book with, with Yale University Press, you argue that Roe v. Wade is not simply about the doctor-patient relationship, but that it forces us to address a number of questions, questions about sexual violence, judicial activism and restraint, racial justice, religious liberty, and the role of science and politics. And the book is kind of laid out by chapter in terms of some of these questions. And this is a follow-up question to, to your response to my last to my last question. But is Roe talked about this way in law school classrooms now that it has been repealed? And what would you like to see more or less of in legal education surrounding abortion? Well, I, I think that, again, Roe is kind of a window into how we think of who who are the kind of constitutional interpreters, right? Like whose job is that? And the federal courts are certainly part of that. But I mean, the way you would probably most classically teach Roe would be to, to read Roe the case and then read the subsequent cases that, you know, first modified it in 1992 and then overruled it into 2022. Um, you, you wouldn't, and I think that's not I mean, some case books will then teach excerpts of my books, right, in, in addition to that stuff. But I think ideally you would want to talk about Roe 
outside the courtroom, because even the row inside the courtroom changed because of lots of other people who are interpreting the Constitution, like grassroots movements. If anyone has never read Roe for themselves, if they do for the first time, it's usually a fairly alienating and even kind of shocking experience, because a lot of the language we associate with Roe, like a woman's right to choose, just isn't in there at all. And it's this very paternalistic thing about doctors. And yet by the 90s, the Supreme Court is using the same language that both right and left-wing social movements were in describing it as a decision about women's choice. So I think if you're teaching Roe, it's helpful to kind of juxtapose what the court was doing to what was happening outside of the court, because I think Roe is a helpful window into the fact that, you know, of course, the Supreme Court doesn't act in a vacuum, right? It's made up of people who are influenced by politics, who are put in place in part because of their political ties. And the court, of course, is in dialogue, not just with politicians and people who put them on the bench, but also with with movements, with state legislatures, with state courts. And I think Roe is probably like case in point one of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think that's, that's a great point because um, my next question is about, you know, the different framing strategies used by abortion activists. And what's really interesting um, to me in in this book is that you trace the different framing strategies by activists on both sides, you know, from the rise of the pro-choice movement to the focus on reproductive justice and race in the early 2000s. And I'm wondering, are you seeing any new frames that activists are using now as access to abortion is being decided on the state level or a lot of or are a lot of frames being recycled even after Roe has been overturned? It's kind of all over the place Mm. at the moment. And I think that's because um, we're in a a period of really tremendous uncertainty. Um, I think it's not even really clear who the kind of the leaders of either movement are at the moment. Um, I think it's fair to say that there are more frames. Um, Certainly some of the most successful efforts on the, the reproductive rights and justice side in the aftermath of Roe have been ballot initiatives and ballot initiatives frames have pretty much been dictated by the politics in place, right? So the frames you saw in Kansas were not the frames you saw in California and those were not the frames you saw in Kentucky, right? Like people are having to kind of tailor their message to to their audiences because while voters in all of those states ultimately, for example, agreed that they, they wanted to expand, relatively speaking, abortion rights, they didn't necessarily agree on how far or why. So you're having, I think, in some ways to address your message to a a local rather than national audience. Um, I think at the same time, there's a lot of kind of experimentation um, and uncertainty. But I, I do think that some of the old frames that Roe put in place, both 1973 row and the kind of many rows we invented thereafter, those things are also kind of sticky. So for example, um, you know, state Supreme Courts, which is a place there's been a lot of action since the Supreme Court undid abortion rights in June, a lot of those courts are still relying on logic similar to the 1973 decision, rhetoric similar to the 1973 decision. So much so that reporters are calling these decisions mini rows. <laughs> so I think we've seen to some extent possible new beginnings, but some of them, again, being tied back to Roe, even if what they mean by Roe is not what the Supreme Court said in 1973. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I and I'm really uh, interested to hear about in you know in our current post row America what challenges in addition to framing strategies you see um, in the fight for um, abortion rights on the state level. But um, in recent articles, you've written and discussed new challenges for women and all who are seeking out abortions across the nation, specifically about new attacks on the First Amendment right to freedom of speech in abortion cases. And, you know, in your perspective, what is at stake in limiting and and criminalizing information about abortion based off of the First Amendment? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, why this is happening is because the state's it's, it's not very hard to criminalize something in general in your state, but it's very hard to enforce criminal bans. And people who, you know, know the history of crim- the criminalization of alcohol know this. People who've followed the history of the, the so-called war on drugs know this. People who have seen attempts to regulate marijuana use know this. Um, and it's even more true when, you know, in roughly half the country, um, or more, abortion is legal at various points in pregnancy, or even viewed in many many places as a protected right still under state law. So the experiments that you've seen states conducting have either been to essentially try to find ways to prevent people from traveling out of state to get an abortion, or to prevent people from realizing that they can travel out of state to get an abortion by controlling access to information. Um, of course, you know, when states do that, it has implications not just for abortion, but for how much we have rights to protected speech at all, because speech is being de- decided or described as aiding or abetting, right? Essentially a criminal act. And uh, that's that's something that could be applied in other areas of, of, of life as well. Um, I, I don't know indeed literally like how those kinds of efforts would be handled constitutionally. The the kind of line between aiding or abetting and protected speech has not been particularly well drawn by the courts. But of course, ultimately, it may land before the very same Supreme Court justices who overturned abortion rights this last summer. So um, it does kind of raise concerns about other protected liberties, not just the, the ones you would suspect at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I I remember when abortion had been overturned in the summer uh, that there were many news articles on the national state of abortion or international state of abortion, um, I should say. Um, and I and I know in your book you had mentioned that the you know abortion rights movement in America has been going on for a, a really long time, but that. Recently, many countries have been legalizing abortion when the United States has been pulling back on, um, at least nationally, um, its access to abortion. And I'm wondering uh, what you see are might be the challenges for um, the United States kind of emerging as just an international leader in politics while we're curtailing women's rights to abortions and, uh, you know, whoever's seeking an abortion, their rights, um, and how that might be being talked about on an international level um, with politicians from across the globe. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's a question of really kind of soft power, right? I mean, historically, Roe was was a pretty big influence on other countries. Um, constitutional courts and constitutional 
um, you know, other constitutional interpreters, right? That, like whether that was legislators, politicians, leaders, um, in part because Roe was first. And I think people gravitated to it as an expression of how there, there could be fundamental rights involving reproduction. So I think the fact that the Supreme Court not only ruled the way it did, but did so in a way that a lot of people across the globe didn't really find very convincing um, makes it harder for the U.S. courts in general to have that kind of soft power to be a place that, you know, other courts look to for guidance in solving their own constitutional problems. And so I, I really think that's been, you know, some of the conversations that are unfolding. Obviously, it's complicated because you'll you'll also see, of course, there'll be some courts that look at the overruling of Roe and question whether, you know, there's something unsound about the idea of a right to abortion. Essentially, you know, it may um, help groups that are opposed to abortion in, in other parts of the world. But I think mostly it's going to be a question of, you know, diminishing the influence of the Supreme Court rather than uh, the other way around. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I'm wondering if we could turn now to uh, recent news on abortion pills in the United States, um, because the FDA recently expanded abortion pill access to retail pharmacies. And I'm wondering, you know, in your perspective, what will come for the come from this measure? Um, are there any complications involved in, in expanding the abortion pill access? And what kind of conversations are happening um, between historians of abortion, between lawyers on this, this uh, measure? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer, too, so I'm involved yeah, in some lawyer conversations. Course. But um, I mean, it, it, the pharmacy move is both significant and insignificant. I mean, it's significant in the sense that if you live in a state where abortion is legal, you already could get abortion pills through telehealth, right? You would could get a prescription and then have the pills mailed to you. But now um, if you have a prescription you'll be and your pharmacy goes through a process to get certified, you will be able to get abortion pills at the pharmacy along with your other prescriptions. So, I mean, it's sort of essentially now if you live in a state where abortion is legal, there may be a time when you can get abortion pills from anywhere else you get prescriptions, whether that's mail order or um, brick and mortar. Um, and it's also significant because some major pharmacy chains like CVS and Walgreens have said they plan on getting certified. It's not that big of a deal because one, it, it doesn't actually make pills available anywhere where they're criminal, right? So in the parts of the country where abortion pills are either heavily restricted or outright criminalized, you won't be able to get the pills either via mail order or in brick and mortar pharmacies, at least without violating the law. Um, it also doesn't really make it that, it, it's still harder, going to be harder to get abortion pills at pharmacies than almost any other kind of pill, because the process for pharmacies to get certified is actually fairly complicated. And there may be a good number of pharmacies that don't bother to undergo the certification process. Um, but I think ultimately, if anything, it kind of underscores the importance of who sits in the White House in terms of abortion access, because the FDA, wh whoever that is, whether that's under a Republican or Democratic administration will likely shape access to abortion pills going forward. Even if this is not, you know, a major game changer, it's still a reminder that, you know, a subsequent administration could pull pills off the market altogether, for example. 
That was really interesting. Um, I think a lot of our listeners will be interested to learn more um, about the current uh, FDA process for for both pills and why, uh, as you've mentioned, it is both significant and insignificant. I think that's a great perspective. Um, and in terms of you know our our last question, we've talked a lot about the themes um, in the book. We've talked a lot about the state of abortion in America today. But I'm wondering if there's anything that you want readers specifically to take away from your discussion of Roe in this book, and if there's anything else that you'd like our listeners to know before they go and purchase the book. Um, I mean, I think it, this was a fairly hopeful book to write because I think there was. If you've read any of the Supreme Court decision overruling Roe, the message is sort of like, look, folks, the debate about abortion is over and there's no more, nothing really more to be said about the Constitution and abortion. So we can all just, you know, move on to other things. Now, of course, that was never going to happen. But I think the history leading up to that opinion and the history following that opinion is really one where people's constitutional rights were being shaped in lots of arenas, not just by the U.S. Supreme Court, right? They were always being shaped at at the ballot box by voters, always by state legislators, always by state courts, always by grassroots movements. And so I think the book is really a story about how those conversations have been happening the whole time Roe was the law. And there's no reason to think, if anything, those conversations are going to be supercharged now. So if people are feeling, you know, demoralized, or if people are just feeling too into the, like too obsessed with the Supreme Court, right? Too directing their energy to the federal courts. This is a good reminder that um, if you are seeking to change something, whether it has to do with abortion or something else, and you think the constitution is going to help you, that the way, the places you should be looking to act are much more varied than, you know, Justice Alito would have you believe. Yeah. Thanks for that. I, I think, um, you know, in the conclusion, you talk about how, you know, the history that you've described doesn't really suggest a clear path forward and there are no easy answers. But I find found particularly compelling uh, your storytelling regarding a lot of the abortion activists on both sides of the spectrum and how oftentimes, you know, their their path in life really changed. Um, sometimes they were pro-abortion, sometimes they were pro-life, and, and how interesting your storytelling is in this book. And I think a lot of our readers will really appreciate that and appreciate, um, you know, that the perspective that you just gave t- to us that um, it can we can be hopeful because there are many avenues to explore in terms of um, executing our rights around um, abortion. Yeah, I mean the story is it, it's always really important. I think because we, I don't know if if you've ever read a story in the newspaper or a book about abortion, nine times out of ten there's going to be a picture of people screaming right and holding mm-hmm. a sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've seen like a million of those. And so I think it's sometimes helpful to hear, you know, hear the voices of people and and kind of why they got there. And people told me some really, you know, important stories about how they survived, you know, sexual harassment and violence Mm -hmm. or how they had to grapple with what choice meant when things like racism or poverty made it hard for them to exercise those choices. And, you know, even people who were opposed to abortion who had had difficulties reconciling that with some of their own experiences. So I think it's also helpful as we sort of think about what we want a post-real world to look like, to know that there's also been a lot of those 
kinds of nuances and shades of gray, not only in the experiences of lots of people you know who've had to think about childbirth or abortion, but also in the experiences of people who you know, have made this conflict their lives, right? Who are way more <laughs> invested and in the weeds than the rest of us are. Um, and and I, I think that's a part of the story of, of what Rose meant to those kinds of nuances that we tend to forget. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that is really powerful. And um, in reading those those narratives and those stories, I also, um, I found um, the history to be to become more alive and more powerful. And I really want to thank you for you know taking the time out of your day to talk with us um, about the history of abortion in America and its future, and of course your new book. Yeah, of course. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Roe: The History of a National Obsession is is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast as well as information about all of our books.